everybody for joining us today. Welcome to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation into the latest in vaping policy. Um, topics today, we will discuss what's happening uh, in several states around the nation, including Colorado, California, and a few others, where lawmakers are on the war path to advance uh, flavor bans and taxes uh, and a variety of other issues. Uh, we'll look at the latest from investigative journalist Mark Gunther, who posted an astonishing piece this week about more than two dozen, two dozen leading tobacco science and policy experts who appealed for a private meeting with Michael Bloomberg and were flatly rejected. We will also look at the results of a recent survey from the National Cancer Institute, which shows in stark detail the harmful misperceptions that have been created by the government's disastrous handling of the wrongly named Uvali outbreak. To make sense of it all, we have two of the smartest thinkers on vaping policy, Greg Conley, who leads the American Vaping Association, and Paul Blair, who leads government affairs efforts at Turning Point Brands. Thank you, gentlemen, both for joining us again on Shaping Vaping. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah, happy to have you guys back. The first time you were on, I don't think we were at the point where we were recording the spaces yet. So this time uh, we'll be able to preserve your your brilliance for posterity. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I had plausible deniability last time I was on and now it's recorded forever. Right. You'll have to watch your P's and Q's today, Paul. <laughs> Um, so yeah. just a reminder for everybody listening, if you have any questions along the way, uh, raise your hand down in the space and we'll do our best to get you on and give you a chance to, to ask your questions. Um, so first off, let's talk about the states. Um, efforts to push various kinds of flavor bans and other prohibitions uh, have ramped up again on the state level, obviously supported by the hundreds of millions of dollars that Bloomberg has injected into lobbying and front groups. Um, near and dear to me is a Colorado, and there we have state legislators trying to implement a statewide ban on flavors across all products, tobacco and nicotine vaping alike. Um, similar bills are being offered in uh, California, Illinois, Alaska, various places. Uh, Greg, I want to start with you and ask if you can give us an overall sense of how these fights are shaping up. Well, maybe Paul, we'll start with you. Oh, there's Greg. All right. Hey, I'm Greg, sorry. I'm back. An overview of these fights. Yes. Some uh, feedback was happening in the microphone. Um, so what the situation that we're facing in 2022 is you have legislators who are now two, three years removed from the real moral panic, all of the news stories about Juul and youth vaping. Uh, but they've all been in their bubbles for the last two years of COVID, where in many states it's been incredibly difficult for individual citizens to get their voice in front of their state representative, their state senator. So they have not had those face-to-face -face meetings with people that they should have been having over the last two years. So there's still a lot of misinformation out there. And of course, many of these legislators, some of them are brand new, especially why you should be contacting them to let them know you live in their district and you care about this issue. But you also have those legislators who have been there for eight, 10 years, and they are now at eight, 10 years of being told by representatives from the industry, uh, consumer advocates, et cetera, that the FDA is right around the corner. Don't worry. Don't do this. Don't do that. The FDA is coming. And unfortunately, we're dealing with a uh, incredibly incompetent FDA, and it's hard to defend them when before these legislators on flavor issues. Um, so there's a lot going on, but that's that's kind of where I'm looking as we head in. Yeah, absolutely. And Paul, what are your thoughts as we uh, are getting into these state legislative sessions? What's your general overview of the situation this year? Yeah, so I think it's important to look at, at trends. I'm a trends guy. That's not to suggest that I'm trendy, but I do, do like to look at trends. And so if you look back beginning of last year at the federal level, Congress passed the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And I think the reason it's important to point this out is that what this did is give shower states with nearly $200 billion in free tax revenue. The only thing that states aren't allowed to spend those resources on are tax cuts or um, uh, significant contributions to pension funds. Beyond that, uh, states obviously give a lot of money to local governments to buy them off for whatever absurd ideas they have throughout the course of the year. Uh, this actually gave another $154 billion to local governments and counties. 
And so while tobacco and vapor issues have generally been tied to this sort of need to generate revenue, it's generally been the pre-2019, dating all the way back to the, the late 1990s, desire to come up with tax revenue conversation, no state in the country is genuinely dealing with uh, significant budget shortfalls because they've had COVID cash helicoptered on them uh, over the duration of the last year and a half. And so um, when you combine that with uh, this this continued distraction around COVID, and, and I use the term distraction not to sort of dismiss uh, the reality of, of, of COVID as, as a you know health health concern, but as a legislative distraction, which is number one, a lot of states have to figure out how to spend that money. And number two, these states uh, are allowed to now sort of dismiss their general concerns for policy decisions that may cost them money. And that's where this conversation around tobacco and vaping comes into play, which is, as I think you're hearing in Colorado and, and we're hearing in other states, uh, questions around whether states should ban menthol cigarettes or ban flavored tobacco or to expand that to include vapor occasionally have run up against legislators who, even if they're open to or persuaded by the idea that we should uh, attempt to use tax or regulatory policy to discourage consumer use of products, have said, well, I don't know if we can afford the budget hit. In a state like Connecticut last year, when they were looking at a flavor ban, you know, you had legislators that said, I don't know if, if we can really look at a $100 million plus revenue hit. Well, given what I've sort of pointed out about the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, states have uh, this year and next year to spend that money or allocate it in some way or lose it. And they've, they're flush with sales tax revenue that came as a result of uh, people across the country also being helicoptered with COVID cash that they went then went on to spend, whether it was online or, or elsewhere. And so I think the trends to watch for are states are increasingly uh, given are being given the opportunity to disregard the revenue impact of banning consumer products, uh, as well as uh, potentially still being distracted with the need to spend a lot of money that they've got, and uh, this this increased pressure from Bloomberg funded entities or public health groups that have said the FDA said they were going to act to Greg's point, and they haven't, or where they've acted has been, in the words of of what these health groups would say been insufficient in achieving their objectives, which are generally the elimination of every flavored product and some, which we'll talk about when we get into states like, like California. So that's sort of how I see this at the, at the high level. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, the emergence of Omicron has been another distraction to look at, which is that a lot of states began re-implementing either mask mandates or social distancing requirements or going back into distance learning for schools. Uh, and when it comes to tobacco and vapor policy, that can be helpful um, because as much as it is a, a public health you know, need to actually address public health issues like COVID, um, for people to be redistracted by that, I think is, is helpful when it comes to what are the real issues that states should be looking at? Is it whether an adult has access to a cherry flavored e-cigarette at a vape shop or whether we should finally get beyond this whole, whole pandemic thing uh, in whatever way people think is necessary? So that's how I see it. Yeah, excellent, excellent context um, before we get into some specific states here. But I, I think that's certainly important. And, uh, you know, that's a nice segue into uh, Colorado. We'll go ahead and start there. Um, I was up there about 10 days ago uh, working on the flavor ban bill there. And, you know, just kind of for backstory uh, in Colorado, you know, the flavor ban has been um, floated at the state level um, several times unsuccessfully. Um, we've had a flurry of, of municipal level fights there on flavor bans. Um, you know, we've had a, a couple of important municipalities where flavor bans have passed, um, but by far and large, you know, due to efforts of, of, you know, business owners and consumers in Colorado, we've kept most of those municipal fights uh, from passing. And so now this year, um, you know, all of the Bloomberg funded groups are really pushing it at the state level again. And, you know, it's, it's a lot more of a danger this year than it has been in the past. You know, Paul, you referenced um, the American Rescue Plan and, and some of that extra money that the states have right now. We're definitely feeling that in Colorado. We've got legislators that are not concerned about uh, fiscal note impacts of this ban at all because, you know, the state has more money than they can spend. 
you know, they literally can't spend the money they have on hand fast enough. And they're not necessarily thinking long term about what happens uh, when that federal money runs out. They're not really worried about the tax hit that they're going to take on flavored vape products, um, menthol products, other, you know, flavored pouch products, other types of tobacco products, um, because there's literally just so much cash in the government ecosystem right now um, that that's not quite as persuasive as it has been in the past. And then also, you know, if we look back at 2020, when the flavor ban was um, really being pushed there, um, the whole legislator got shut down because of COVID concerns. And the state was only really dealing with essential bills related to COVID and COVID recovery. Um, So now this year, we've got a much tougher fight on our hands there. you know, and, and we're sort of looking at, you know, how we're going to rally the grassroots to fight that, you know, how we're really going to be persuasive in this environment where folks are not necessarily concerned about um, fiscal impacts, um, you know, state tax budget revenue, that sort of thing. And so, you know, now um, it's really a focus on what the true focus I feel should have been all along, which is the impact to consumers and to smokers who are trying to quit. And so we're having to be really persuasive on those grounds there. Uh, I know, Paul, um, Colorado is a state that is of particular concern to you. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the, you know, non-vapor aspects with other harm reduction products in Colorado? Sure. Um, And and I think uh, worth noting that this is something we're monitoring in in other states as well, which is over the last year and a half, two years, three years, uh, other harm reduction tools and products uh, have have begun to get looped into, you know, this regulatory crusade against uh, vaping. And and that includes oral pouch products, uh, flavored and unflavored products. And so to the extent that states um, like Colorado, look at these category-wide, tobacco, vape, pouch, everything that falls within sort of the regulatory parameters of a defined tobacco or vapor product. Um, we are increasingly seeing that that products that for some tobacco consumers, vapor may not be uh, the, the preferred reduced risk alternative, but pouch products are. And there's been a significant rise in these products across the country. Um, and so you know, I think the real risk long term is that for legislators who can be compelled or persuaded to take a singular look at, at, at vapor products, whether it's from a tax, regulatory ban, whatever absurd and, and narrow minded perspective they want to view, that the shrapnel from from those sort of battles and crusades presents this real risk for adult smokers and consumers who may ultimately two, three, four, five years from now, if they haven't decided today or tomorrow, they want to look at something to reduce their use of some sort of tobacco product, whether it's combustible or uncombustible. Uh, we've got this this threat. The pouch products uh, are are also, you know, going to be looped up in, in these fights. And and whether this is on, um, you know, traditional pouch products or or some of the new and innovative products that have come out uh, as a bunch of companies have gotten into this space in the last several years. I think it's another sort of threat to harm reduction uh, that that we're really seeing play out. And I don't know that a lot of legislators are paying a lot of attention to this because how do you convince a legislator that a you know a pouch product uh, is 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 uh, is a real threat? I mean, you, if you read, I guess, the campaign for tobacco free kids website or one of the health organizations' website, they lead you to believe that it's this great risk, uh, but. No one's using those products. That's you know 16 years old. That's that's not a reality. It's not a, a function of reality, and so uh, it is. I think a new threat that they've sort of lurched onto as an increasing number of adults have looked to transition to those products. Right, and I think it really shows you know a weakness in their argument. You know this false narrative that they've created around the youth epidemic, you know, totally ignoring the huge reduction in youth usage of vapor products over the last several years. And then you get into these, you know, much newer, more innovative products that that youth clearly are not using. You know, I know several people who are using those types of um, oral pouch products to quit chewing tobacco quite successfully. And, you know, it's certainly not something that that we see youth using at all, but they're lumping it in under that under that same flimsy pretext, right? And I, I really do see some of those arguments starting to fall apart. Um, so quickly, I want to move into California. I wonder, Greg, if you could give us a bit of an overview of the history in California before we get into some of the new bills that are going on. Sure. So California has been the bane of the existence of many advocates over the last 
seven, eight years. Many years ago, they successfully got a ballot initiative passed that ended up taxing vaping products at a wholesale level equivalent to other tobacco products like smokeless tobacco. And all the money, or a portion of the money, that came in from that tax hike in combination with money coming in from a cigarette tax hike funnel resulted in the funneling of hundreds of millions of dollars down to local counties and local cities for quote unquote tobacco prevention work. But really what that money gets used for in many instances is to activate large numbers of uh, well-meaning but ultimately wrong intentioned people to go out to city councils, to go out to their state legislators and push for prohibition of just about anything with the goal in mind of either 2030 or 2035 for California to be completely tobacco free, which is of course a, a dream, but nonetheless, they want to, and they are very dedicated to reaching that point in 10 years from now where they actually ban the sale of all tobacco and nicotine products. Yeah, you know, and the fight in California reveals a classic strategy that these front groups often use, which is to cycle through a variety of attack angles to see what might resonate. Um, so now we've got California Assembly member Luz Rivas, a Democrat who represents North Hollywood, uh, who recently told the Los Angeles Times that vaping may cause an environmental catastrophe. She said, quote, our planet is at a critical tipping point. Cigarette filters destroy our environment unlike any other discarded waste, and the toxic chemicals found in electronic vapes seep, seep into our fragile ecosystems, all while also damaging individuals' health with hazardous smoke. Um, you know, I can sympathize with people who want to clean discarded cigarettes off the sidewalk, and to that I would suggest vaping as a fantastic alternative to get rid of the cigarette butts. Um, you know, this seems ludicrous on the surface, but Greg and Paul um, how could this bill shake out in California? So I'll just add before I let Paul give his take is this has been a goal of tobacco control for several years. What we're talking about with this bill in California is it would ban filters on cigarettes as well as any single-use filters sold to, to supplement the non-filtered cigarettes. And through some language that is not entirely clear, it would ban uh, a single-use electronic cigarette or a single-use vapor device. So there is some confusion as to whether or not they intend to ban pods, which are intended to replace significantly more than one cigarette worth of nicotine, or if they are just, quote unquote, just targeting disposables. We'll figure that out as they move this bill through the legislative process. Yeah, so making two comments here. One, um, I, I'm puzzled by the desire to remove um, filters from from cigarettes as certainly not a harm reduction tool for consumers unless you really really like uh, what may have previously been unfiltered cigarettes uh, as as a sort of public health objective. I'm also intrigued by uh, what what I suspect might be the future of environmentalism as a, a tool for reducing the number of available reduced risk products that exist. Which is I'm waiting for this argument to emerge at some point that uh, you know exhaling propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin blows a hole in the ozone as a justification for saving the environment um, uh, as we've got to eliminate that sort of activity to, to save the, the birds and the planet. Certainly, Rich, coming from a state like California, where I suspect you'll also find more heroin needles and um, uh, other drug paraphernalia that's far greater risk on you know, Santa Monica beaches than cigarette butts uh, or uh, disposable e-cigarettes. Um, but that's my colored commentary that doesn't necessarily help with this. I mean, I think, you know, to the, to your point earlier, Amanda, I mean, this is, you got to throw a lot of things at the wall when the traditional, more fact-based arguments fail to resonate. And um, certainly cigarette butts can be an annoyance. And certainly there's a body of evidence that uh, that, that debris and some cumulative effect uh, is certainly not beneficial to the environment. But to your point, um, the easiest way to eliminate millions of cigarette butts that exist in any capacity anywhere in the world, whether it's on beaches, rivers, oceans, or mountains, uh, is to transition a smoker to uh, a product where there isn't, you know, 20 pieces of waste on a daily basis that results from its use. And so, you know, we've seen this, this argument uh, fail to resonate last year in terms of legislative movement on this bill. 
there is there's similar legislation in New York. Um, so if you generally want to follow bad ideas, look at what both New York and California uh, are, are doing and saying. Um, but I, I do think this is one of those uh, things that that I think we're going to have to wait some time on. Um, obviously, as you've talked about on previous episodes, there's a big ballot initiative in California that, that would eliminate a significant portion of cigarettes that exist in the state as a result of banning menthol cigarettes. And so um, I, I do think this is something that will will wait an, an, until what happens on that ballot initiative, because that certainly will uh, have a pretty significant impact uh, for those that at least state environmental concerns are their objective. Yeah, you know, Paul, I'll, um, I'll, I'll uh, you know, piggyback off of one of your comments there. I, I don't live in California. I'm based out of Arizona, but I am in California right now. And, you know, just yesterday morning, I was going out to breakfast with my family and we were paying for parking here in San Diego, you know, while we were standing at the little kiosk to pay for our parking, I'm having to watch my 11 and my nine-year-old to make sure they're not stepping on the dirty needles that are around the the little uh, kiosk there where we were paying for parking. And so, you know, it's it's not really just a sound bite that's on television. It's, it's a very real thing. And, you know, it's pretty disturbing when you're walking around in these cities, especially when you have your children with you and you're finding, you know, dirty needles everywhere while you're walking. I would certainly think that that would be, um, you know, a higher priority than attacking, you know, harm reduction products here in the state. Um, but absolutely, you know, um, I want to know for California, obviously, there are things moving with the ballot referendum uh, that are going to call a lot into question. But what can consumers and small business owners do to get involved in the fight here in California? So I know there is a ballot committee that's been organized to fight and, of course, funded primarily or entirely by the large tobacco companies because they're the ones with the most to lose. But the ballot fight in November, there is a ballot committee that they will have literature, they'll have signs and such. So I think getting out the message that your vote matters in November, it's not just Senate or House elections on the ballot, your ability to continue to access these products, um, if your city or county has not already banned them, your ability to access these products is being threatened. So just getting involved that way um, can be important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Paul, any other uh, follow-up comments on, you know, what's really needed in this California fight right now and how folks can get engaged? Yeah, I mean, obviously registering to vote is always step one. Um, you know, if you reach out to a legislator uh, many times, having having worked in a, a member of Congress's office while I was in high school, we'll check your voter registration status. Um, and so that's, that's step one if you're going to be reaching out, whether it's on this single-use disposable bill, um, or if you're going to engage throughout the election cycle uh, to make sure you do that. And then I would say, uh, perhaps not ironically or humorously, uh, if you're a vapor, either business or consumer, figure out where the uh, local, where the closest border is, either to, to Nevada or Arizona or elsewhere in case the ballot initiative does pass, because you'll only have, you know, five to 15 days uh, to, to purchase any flavored product that you might enjoy. And so <laughs> make sure you know where the closest border is that you can uh, figure out how long it takes to drive there in case this uh, doesn't doesn't pan out in the right way. Yeah, that's not much lead time there for consumers, is it? Uh, so we've talked about Colorado. We've talked about California. We've got a few states where um, some pro-vaping legislation is moving. But before we get into that, um, what other states are either of you watching, um, you know, as sort of the big fights this year? So I always look at fights from the perspective of where we were last year and what stopped things from moving that otherwise could have. And so I'm thinking right now of Alaska, where there's a bill that carried over that is a combination of Tobacco 21, a flavor ban, a tax on top of local taxes, as well as a requirement that every manufacturer or distributor selling into Alaska get a $10 million uh, personal liability insurance coverage. That is a scary one. And uh, up there in remote Juneau, it can be hard to get FaceTime with legislators. Maine, at the end of this week on Friday, there's going to be a hearing on a bill to create, I think, believe they call it a healthy trust in the state of Maine. And included in that proposal is a flavored tobacco ban. 
Um, and there are plenty of others. I'm sure Paul has two or three that he's watching as well. And some bills, of course, some states, what bills we're looking at today, two weeks from now, it could be completely different because bills are still being introduced every day throughout the states. Yeah, I mean, we, we still have a number of states that haven't fully come into session yet. And so uh, not every state requires either uh, carryover or pre-filing. Um, some of these threats uh, come up as a result of a governor's budget proposal uh, or, as we can see, some sort of strike and replace on on any number of, of spending tax or budget bills. And so, you know, in a state like Connecticut, the governor uh, obviously comes out and says this is what he wants to do. This is what he's going to do. Wait to see what happens. Um, but in other states, whether it's uh, uh, Washington, where we're monitoring the extent to which the Department of Health has regulatory authority to either impose nicotine caps or flavor bans, uh, or, or in Minnesota, where, uh, again, we had these threats last year. Um, some of these, to Greg's point about looking at what happened last year, where, where there is carryover, where it's the same bill that last year either didn't get a favorable or unfavorable vote, but just automatically carries over into session. We'll just have to wait until probably mid-February or so in some of these states as as they get beyond sort of the budget addresses and, and governor's proposals. Um, but it, it is many of the same threats that we didn't lose last year. Again, worth pointing out both to my initial comments about the COVID cash being helicopter on everyone. There were not major state flavor ban losses last year, which was a departure from the year prior where, you know, COVID inspired, where uh, the, the Valley crisis uh, inspired states to take misguided action against the vaping industry and its consumers. Um, and so where states failed in their minds to address issues related to the availability of vapor products on top of the fact that the FDA uh, hasn't removed every product from the market or where it has attempted, um, entrepreneurs have found a uh, workaround, um, you know, th that there there is going to be that, that, you know, new enthusiasm to address which they haven't been able to in some of these traditional anti-tobacco or anti-vapor states i would say um, i don't think there are going to be new states that uh, haven't historically been threats to the industry or its consumers where we face major questions around flavored products generally uh, but on a threat basis uh, i i think a new threat and this probably warrants its own episode is how vapor products are being defined and what is required in order to be a vapor market, a vapor product that remains on the market. And this gets into uh, the, the existence of synthetic nicotine vapor products. And I think that uh, that is where we're seeing a new frontier of fights in, in states attempting to redefine what is allowed to remain on the market if there isn't something like a pre-market tobacco application process at the FDA. This is going to happen in more Republican-run red states, which have not traditionally been hostile battlegrounds on tobacco and vapor issues, unless you go back into you know the 2014 and 2016 era when the most significant fight the industry faced and its consumers faced was was taxes. Um, but that's that's I think the the new yet to be seen threat that we know is going to exist in a couple of new states that we didn't necessarily see play out last year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've already got a, a bit of foreshadowing on your last point, Paul, with, um, you know, a couple of states who who were early to that type of action last year. I know um, Oklahoma is is one. And then uh, I'm drawing a blank. It's one of the southern states that starts with an A. Which one was Alabama. it? Alabama. Alabama. Thank you, Greg. Yeah, Alabama did that last year. So what, what states have we already seen those types of actions introduced this year? So I don't know if it's officially been introduced yet, but we expect a bill to be filed in Tennessee that replicates the Alabama model. Um, the Connecticut bill last year would have uh, uh, eliminated synthetic products, but in the same way that it would have eliminated flavored tobacco-derived products. And so that's not necessarily a new fight. That just expanded the category to make sure they banned everything. Uh, those are the, those are, we, we, again, I, I suspect that the synthetic question in many states will come down to a last minute filing or strike and replace issue. But um, Tennessee is a state where we do expect it on top of um, what we what we saw in Oklahoma last year. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've got, you know, obviously 50 states here in the U.S. 
Um, and we've got a variety of issues that we're looking at. We've already touched on quite a few of them. You know, the old favorites of, of flavor bans and taxes, as well as some of these new issues like um, banning single-use products, banning um, synthetic, requiring uh, marketing authorization through FDA. And so there's a lot to keep up on. So for anybody um, in our audience or who might catch the replay, I would strongly suggest you know, if you're a consumer, make sure you're connected with a group like CASA who, you know, monitors all of this and keeps the consumer base really well informed on how to take action against some of these things. And, you know, if you happen to be in the industry as a small business owner um, or any other type of industry participant, you know, get with your local state groups. Um, just about every state in the country has a state trade association. And I would strongly suggest that if you're not already involved with those, to get involved with them so that you can stay informed about all of these threats that are going to impact your business. Um, so moving on, I want to talk um, about one more thing before we move into the next segment of the space. Um, some of the states where um, some pro-vaping legislation is happening. Um, the top on my list for me um, being Arizona, because I've been so involved in that over the last four years, uh, we've had a long-standing effort there to properly regulate uh, vapor and tobacco products um, by raising the, the age to sell in Arizona to 21 uh, to match the federal standard, to license businesses, to increase compliance checks and penalties for bad actors. And then also included in that bill, um, is language to regulate vape products only at the state so that we don't have this patchwork of flavor bans and taxes that varies from city to city and makes it really hard for business owners with multiple locations to conduct business or it makes it really hard for consumers to know where their products are going to be available for them. So that's that's something that, that we were working very hard on in Arizona. I know similar um, efforts are going on in other states. So what are you guys watching as far as, you know, potentially positive legislation for harm reduction? Sure. I'm excited about a bill that I actually just watched a little presentation on from the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network earlier this morning. They were talking about the dangers of a bill that was introduced last year in South Carolina and has carried over. And it's a bill, fairly simple bill that would just say, the state makes laws about taxation, about licensing, about productivity, so you're preempted from doing it, local governments and counties. So that bill passed the House pretty, much, pretty overwhelmingly, as I recall, and then it got held up in the Senate because they managed to convince a couple senators to put some procedural um, holes before them. But that bill is carried over, and the American Cancer Society representative indicated on the webinar that if that bill actually gets to the floor of the Senate, that it has the votes to pass. Um, so that is something I'm looking forward to, because even in that webinar, they indicate, yeah, we don't think South Carolina for a statewide flavor ban yet, but we have a county work group who is who is certainly working hard in, in one of the more populated areas. So it will be very nice to see that bill in South Carolina actually pass, and hopefully it will. That's great. Paul, do you have any other potential wins that you see on the horizon for vapors? Um, I think the, the conversation around preemption is, is really the best that, that vapors can strive for. Um, anything that avoids a patchwork of policies at the local level that may require someone to drive to another city or county to, to sort of buy these risk reduction tools is, is a win. And you know, this is, is something that is extremely, extremely important, but also not only related to vaping. I mean, there are multiple businesses and multiple sort of consumer interests that are impacted by this sort of thing. And so to the extent that uh, those, those sort of fights play out in any state, it, it's always a favorable outcome. What I'd also suggest is that it's obviously very unclear how the PMTA fight plays out at the federal level, um, but any recognition that states make where they go down this misguided path of attempting to ban products that there should be preserved in some capacity, uh, an ability of a business to sell products that have been approved by the FDA is a slight win. Now, as we've talked about previously, <laughs> the extent to which any of us should be optimistic that the agency is going to approve products that adults actually want to use is up in the air. But at least on a sort of principle or conceptual basis, states that give deference to the agency when it comes to approvals 
um, that that don't seek to regulate in their place uh, is is it something that at a minimum we can take uh, as a as a very 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 small small victory. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, on that note of of FDA, I know that. Uh, some oral arguments were heard in the Triton case this morning. And I know we have uh, Todd in the audience here, so I don't want to get too far off base on that, uh, lest I misrepresent what went on this morning. But some of the the talk that I've heard uh, among uh, vape social media today is that, you know, it was interesting because um, one of the judges in that case um, wanted to know how you ignite a vapor device, uh, which I think kind of shows the the level of knowledge that we're dealing with here. Um, But I believe there were three judges involved in those arguments this morning. Um, One that seems to understand, uh, one that there may be some hope for, and one that's kind of seen as a wild card. Uh, were either of you two able to catch uh, those Triton arguments this morning? Yeah, I'll, I'll share my perspective um, only as uh, someone who, who's sort of recently talked a little bit about um, sort of our company's own engagement with the FDA on, on a legal front. So uh, one of the judges, uh, Jones, really did take FDA to task sort of over uh, their decision and its defense. And I think this is the big question that everyone has to monitor and be concerned about. Um, and, and it's whether sort of relief or remedy for Triton is something that leads to any sort of substantive policy change for anyone else who is under review um, or could be placed back into review, right? I mean, I think that the agency clearly has had to admit to some degree since September of last year that they messed up, that they made some mistakes. Now, they've been willing to admit it more so with some businesses than others, but it was clearly a across-the-board policy decision that they're only willing to make some concessions about their reckless decision-making uh, for some. Certainly one of our, our companies was one of that. And so I think what the court will struggle with and some of the questions that arose during this case in terms of what it is clear the court struggles with is what they have the ability to do in a way that is within the guidelines of what they think they can do to rein in the administrative and regulatory state and what that means for for anyone else other than Triton. And 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 that's I think the biggest biggest question that anyone who's watching this case or any of the other cases that are playing out is how does uh, the FDA uh, escape unscathed? Do they think that they escape unscathed as it relates to the PMT review process? And I suspect that they think they do, because even if they're forced to go back to the drawing board on how they treated this specific application, is uh, a specific circuit court going to upend the entire PMTA process? The answer is no. Is the FDA going to be forced to re-review some applications? Maybe certainly. Do they take that as an opportunity to re-review applications, find issues with those applications, and then ultimately get to the outcome that they want to, which is denial of products? Maybe. And that's that's what is such a struggle here because we all know any independent observer, certainly I'm not one because we're a business regulated by the agency, but everyone knows that they made mistakes because they admitted they made mistakes. They admitted they overlooked a substantial amount of data, a substantial amount of science that was presented to them. And so how they defend that in different courts uh, is something we're seeing out in this case and and their oral argument set up for another. But the real struggle is what that means for anyone else. Right. And that that is the million dollar question. And it very much remains to be seen. But certainly, you know, all of this litigation is is definitely the space to watch right now when it comes to FDA. Um, I want to move on now to the public release of what we're calling the Bloomberg letters. Mark Gunther broke a remarkable story on his Medium site last week. His story focuses on a letter from 23 distinguished public health experts to Bloomberg Philanthropies asking for a private meeting to discuss how its advocacy is increasingly at odds with emerging data trends and science. But Mike Bloomberg ignored them and instead had one of his staffers respond with boilerplate language, talking points, and a refusal to have a meeting. Those public health experts replied with perhaps the most thorough and rigorous compilation of data and proof points that I've ever seen. It's devastating, and I would urge anyone listening to read the whole thing, which we are throwing up in a featured tweet in the space right now. Um, But here's a snippet from that letter. 
Uh, they say, your famous injunction in God we trust, everyone else bring data is a good one and should be a universal maxim in philanthropy. But it implies a reciprocal obligation to be open to challenging data and to pursue philanthropic aims with a restless curiosity about what works, what does not work, and the plausible perverse consequences of well-intentioned interventions. And the signatories included Stephen Schroeder, the former president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Cheryl Hilton, the founding president of the anti-smoking nonprofit now called the Truth Initiative, who went on to lead School of, of Public Health at New York University, and Kenneth Warner, Dean Emeritus of Public Health at the University of Michigan. All have devoted their careers to tobacco control, but Bloomberg just ignored the whole thing. Greg, Paul, your thoughts on this incredible piece of journalism from Mark Gunther? Sure. First, I'll just say one of the things that you can see in that letter and the people who signed it is how opinions can shift in this field. I am more cynical and glasses half empty about the people who in 2022 are still very much anti-vaping. But some of the, the signatories to that letter back when I started doing advocacy in 2010, 2011, they were the enemies. Cheryl Hilton, David Abrams, they were the ones who were extremely pessimistic about thing. And then they actually, as the Bloomberg quote goes, the data came in and they trusted in the data and changed their views on vaping. I think if you polled the 23 people who signed that letter, you would find a, a small single digit number among them who actually believed anything but that boilerplate response from a Bloomberg crony was going to be the end result of that letter. But now when those 20, hopefully all 23 of them, when they do interviews with the media, when they talk to their colleagues, when they talk to state departments of health, when they talk to people who may be getting nice jobs in the federal government, they will bring up, hey, not only have we published about how this is the wrong approach, we directly went to the source of all these, all this misinformation. And he wouldn't even have the decency to meet with us, people who have uh, for years done work that he has gloriously approved of. Yeah, you know, he's so convicted and in his in his wrongheaded mission there, he won't even entertain a conversation with people who are, you know, undeniably leading experts on this topic. Paul, did you? Have no, and, you and they just need to that just needs to continue to happen every three months. There needs to be a reminder in the U.S. media of the just wall that Bloomberg and Bloomberg Philanthropies has put up so that eventually it goes beyond Mark Gunther's excellent Medium blog. And you have, we'll be talking about someone coming into the New York Times that one day hopefully will look at the perversion of science in this field. Yeah, what I'll suggest is I, I always take comfort in a growing list of people who dislike Mike Bloomberg. I mean, this is a guy who spent a billion dollars to get like one delegate in American Samoa when he ran for president of the United States. Um, and so um, the unfortunate reality for um, the sort of cynicism that Greg and I share about public health generally, but certainly people like Mike Bloomberg is it has real real world consequences. And, you know, the evolution of thinking by public health professionals is helpful, but that slow progress has come at the cost of, 97.4% of people in the United States not believing that e-cigarettes are much less harmful than combustible cigarettes, which kill several hundred thousand people per year in the U.S. And so um, that that's the real consequence. And for someone like Mike Bloomberg, who has spent so much money, not only in the U.S., but globally to, um, uh, you know, to, to attack smoking and cigarette use and tobacco use, to then pivot in 2019 uh, and say, well, I'm going to commit several hundred million dollars to also ending vaping. Uh, the, the, the consequence of that is that every health group that may otherwise either be led by or have professionals involved in um, this acknowledgement of risk reduction uh, can't be involved in those organizations anymore. And, and this is why I fault people, whether they are at the FDA or Center for Tobacco Products or any of these health groups that doesn't vocally speak out. Because to Greg's point, the data today is overwhelming. When we were engaged in these fights between 2010 and 2015, it was common sense, right? It, for, for many of uh, us, or whether you're a vapor who just quit smoking, 
it's like, of course, if you remove combustion from the equation, a product is much less harmful. But, you know, all the people with PhDs and MDs next to their name said they needed about seven years of data in order to prove, which we knew was common sense. And so finally, we're there. It's just that that, that slow evolution comes at such a significant cost that that people, the, the 30 plus million American adult smokers who um, continue to believe on top of the American general public that these aren't reduced risk products um, are putting themselves at risk. And for, Mo- for Mike Bloomberg's other hobbies, like banning guns or you know making it illegal to get a 32 ounce cup of soda in New York City, those are fun flirtations with exercising power over consumer choices that aren't always as significant when it comes to having an impact on people because he's largely been unsuccessful with all of those other you know, billion dollar endeavors of his. This is something that he's having success in, not in terms of long-term success, because we're seeing these credible people turn against sort of the funded entities, but, you know, aided by what the CDC says to people, aided by, you know, the the campaigns funded by the Truth Initiative and others, uh, you have a significant number of people that have been misled and continue to make poor health decisions about their own lives uh, that has uh, such such horrible consequences um, that that anyone affiliated with a Mike Bloomberg entity, philanthropy, foundation, or funded organization should be ashamed of themselves. And yeah, I'll quickly yeah, add, it was, sorry, man, I'll quickly add, it was, I believe, October or September of 2019 when Bloomberg committed approximately 155, $160 million over a three-year period. So that three years is going to come up in eight months or so. So a way for Bloomberg to perhaps uh, recognize that he was wrong without Michael Bloomberg admitting that he was wrong could be ending up paring back his donations to tobacco-free kids to where they were five years ago, as opposed to just drowning him with money. Right. And so we'll have to keep an eye out for that and see what his contributions might be here in another eight months. Um, But, you know, Paul, some of the commentary you had is a great segue into our next topic. Uh, We're going to throw up a featured tweet right now um, that covers this. In another piece from last week, Mark Gunther included a chart showing the results from a survey from the National Cancer Institute that a wide majority of Americans believe that vaping is as harmful or more harmful than smoking. Um, You know, this level of misinformation is shocking, you know, and obviously we've talked about the role that CDC, FDA, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and other of these Bloomberg groups have played in this misinformation. But the real question, you know, given that the situation is what it is, you know, how can we turn this around and, you know, have a public that's accurately informed on the benefits of vaping and the harm reduction aspects of vaping? Here's, I think, the biggest struggle uh, faced on this issue. And that is that businesses that manufacture and sell these products are not allowed to accurately communicate the risk reduction potential of these products that are on the market. And the reason for that is because of the Tobacco Control Act. Obviously, as a manufacturer, you have to get permission to make health claims about the specific products that you sell. Now, dating back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, for many businesses, that was probably a good idea because there were businesses that were misinforming the public about the health risks associated with their products. The problem has been this regulatory capture in a retrospective state that doesn't allow businesses with the financial means to do so to advertise their products in a particular way. So that's step one. Step two is they are the the absence of an ability for a manufacturer to accurately um, uh, explain the risk reduction potential of their products has been a significant amount of resources committed by taxpayers through the Centers for Disease Control, which has absolutely no credibility today, um, in, in campaigns that have misinformed the public about these risks. And whether it was the Avali crisis in 2019, where it took them several months after even the FDA acknowledged that what was happening at the time had nothing to do with commercially available e-cigarettes. These are people who knowingly mislead. And so what I would suggest is that the only real remedy to taxpayers footing the bill for misinformation is intervention from Congress, whether it is appropriators uh, or or others. And, And this was, I think, a mistake of the last administration that had the ability to engage here and obviously took a different path, which was the amount of money that we waste on things, not that 
waste is a focus of anyone in Washington right now, but for the amount of money that we waste on things, perhaps not misinforming the public of, of entrepreneurial outcomes that are saving lives uh, shouldn't be something that, that the CDC, among others, is allowed to do. So those are, I think, the, 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 the two sort of unfortunate reality of, of communication limitations, as well as the only real power Congress has to limit this sort of stuff, because the Mike Bloomberg funded entities are always going to lie. I mean, I, I genuinely think that they don't exist unless they're allowed to lie. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think the power of purse strings is, is, is the only real opportunity that we might have after November's elections. Um, but I think it's a, a real hill to climb to think that that might be something that they do. Greg, what are your thoughts on this? I think the one of the takeaways that I've seen from the literature is one of the problems is that even if you get an MRTP, the public does not believe a message printed on the side of a can of General Snooze. They just don't. And so if you don't have the kind of marketing campaign where you can break through that barrier, it's incredibly difficult when you're up against, for instance, in the state of California, I think you're, if you polled specifically California and then the other 49 states, I think you will have several larger percentage points of people believing vaping is just as harmful or more harmful than smoking because of the never-ending, very well-funded television, radio, internet, et cetera, campaign against these products. So you're fighting, we are fighting, of course, a, a very uphill battle on harm reduction just because the beliefs about these products are very difficult to change in light of just every month every couple months, even if you're just somebody that doesn't follow this news, you hear something bad about tobacco and nicotine products. And the, and the last comment I'll make on this is public health does itself no favors as it relates to their potential ability to accurately inform the public about the risk reduction associated with whether it's e-cigarettes or smokeless tobacco or whatever it may be, because they are so politically engaged in every issue that confronts them. And so even if you had the CDC today come out and say, by the way, adult smokers, you should transition to e-cigarettes and vapor products. Half the country would laugh at them. And, and part of this has to do with how they've handled COVID over the last two years. Um, and, uh, you know, half of it's any, any number of other issues. And so uh, this is a bigger public health credibility question than limited to uh, a, a conversation around vaping and e-cigarettes. And it's something they're going to have to deal with long term. But until they get their house in order, we have businesses that are hamstrung in terms of their marketing abilities, public health um, institutions funded by taxpayers that have no credibility to communicate the risks or benefits of consumer product use, um, and Bloomberg, among others, spending a lot of money to, to lie to people. And so those are the th sort of three tranches of threats that make this such a significant uh, you know, uphill fight. Absolutely. Well, um, we're running up on our time, but let's go ahead and move into our media lapdogs of the week. And there is never a shortage of lapdogs to cover. Uh, we might be able to hit one or two of them here. Uh, first of all, the Daily Mail published a fear-mongering article claiming that e-cigarettes can damage men's fertility. And their coverage cites the British Fertility Society's campaign to bring awareness to, fact to factors affecting men's testicular health and fertility. It seems like every time we turn around, there's a new media story hyping some dubious health risk. Um, my question to you both is why are media outlets so eager to run with the most thinly supported claims when it comes to vaping? Because they're British. That's the simple. If you follow this news very closely, you will see every month or two, there's a new study that's absolutely ridiculous and it comes out and the Daily Mail, the Sun, one of those papers puts it on the front page with a scary image, and then various third-rate junk websites, they'll recycle it, but it won't go into American media, uh, by, by and large. And that seemed to be the case with this nonsense fertility erections story. Uh, and that's a good thing, but of course there is no shortage of other stories to, to fill that gap. But this is expected, this is never going to stop. Uh, it, it's a sexy, headline and journalists, uh, you're never going to to get the people that work at the Daily Mail or the Sun to recognize that what they're doing is morally wrong. 
Yeah, and it's crazy, you know, even in a country that has fairly decent vaping policy and an excellent understanding of harm reduction, you know, they're still not immune from this massive media misinformation. Um, Paul, you got any thoughts on that story before we move along here? No, I'll just add that we we have seen similar accusations. If you eat too much red meat, this is a similar outcome. If you eat too much salt, this is a similar outcome. Um, And so it's like, you know, what's the most headline grabbing clickable uh, set of stories you can come up with to demonize your disfavored sort of consumer dietary preference and not really a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so next up, uh, Art Spiegelman is the author of a book that was just banned in Tennessee. This week, the New York Times reported on the ban of his book. Um, but also Spiegelman is a former chain smoker who quit by accident after he picked up vaping. Um, the story about his book ban got a lot of attention, and in, in every interview on TV or in photographs, Mr. Spiegelman was vaping, yet there was no curiosity or mention of any of that in the coverage. And if you saw you know, some of the clips from CNN or whatnot, it was quite striking, but interestingly, not covered at all. Uh, Greg and Paul, I'm sure you all know a lot of folks who quit smoking practically by accident. Um, why don't we see that story reflected in mainstream coverage of vaping in the New York Times and other national media? Unfortunately, many people, just like in the field of labor law, a lot of labor reporters are activists who get into journalism to further their personal beliefs on labor. Health reporters, unfortunately, as time goes on, they're falling more and more into that category where you have people who, if they suddenly lost their CNN job tomorrow, they would fill in very comfortably at a health activism group that just pushes for new bans or new taxes. And that's what you have at these networks. You have people with long track records. You have the former at the CNN. You have the former NBC news health journalist who I believe I looked through about four or five years of her stories on this subject, probably doing one story every two months or so. Never once did this woman interview anyone but FDA, tobacco-free kids, American lung. Never, ever. So that's what we're dealing with is some of these outlets they certainly don't want to ask this great author what he's doing because it's not a story they want to explore. Yeah, and I'll just add, I, I think this is, um, uh, as folks that know me or follow me, I, I like to add some comedy color to these sort of perspectives. But I think this is one of the unfortunate, realistic consequences of smoking not being as prevalent today as it was 20, 30 years ago. Because you have so many reporters, like the general public, that don't smoke. You've got you know, a decreasing number of people in the U.S. who are tobacco consumers. And the result of that is you look at tobacco consumers, and, and there has been a concerted effort to villainize tobacco consumers or, or adults that smoke. And the result of that is that everyone is some odd anecdote who may have been able to quit well, if you would have you know, talked to any number of reporters at any of these institutions in the 1960s, 1970s, they all smoked. They could have much easier understood if e-cigarettes were on the market in 1974, a transition to these products, because they probably would have experienced it themselves, as opposed to now being ivory tower elitists that don't get out into the real world and only see e-cigarettes at a bodega occasionally. Um, that's The reality is that some of the best reporters that cover vaping or tobacco policy are ones that quit smoking with e-cigarettes. And, and so that's, I, I, you know, when you go to 13% of the population that uses a cigarette as opposed to half, one of, one of the real world consequences is being disconnected from the reality of a smoker's quit journey. Um, and so I think that probably gets to the heart of this as well. At least it's helpful now. Like the poll you're showing is from Ben Dreyfus, who is the the son of Richard Dreyfus, used to be at Mother Jones Magazine, is a very popular and and funny person to follow on Twitter who knows many, many journalists. When he posts positively about vaping, it is because he found it easy to quit smoking with vaping. Gene Park, who's at the Washington Post, another one who was a very dedicated journalist smoker uh, in the vein of journalist from 40 years ago, and he quit with vaping. And so that's important when you have these journalists that hopefully they will hear from, uh, or they will reach out to other journalists who are doing stories that are not at all accurate. Uh, Maybe in the long run, we can get some change at some of these outlets, just as that is a small part of the solution. 
Yeah, well, thank you both for joining us today. That's about all the time we have. Um, but thank you all for your insights, your pessimism, and your comedy. We appreciate it. Um, Greg, how can people keep up with your work and what you're up to? Sure. Uh, you are listening to Twitter, so I don't need to plug uh, Greg THR, but as well as AVA, AVA Board, uh, vaping.org. But I also want to send a message out that this is a scary legislative year, particularly with all of the possibilities of PMTA provisions being added and built to the last minute. If you have any connections uh, in the industry to distributors, to manufacturers that are, that are doing well in the disposable space, for instance, now's the time to get them connected to Amanda and AVM because we are not going, this industry, this this independent industry is not in the position that we were three, four years ago to fight bad policy. And those who are uh, still around uh, this industry uh, and staying strong, we need your help. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. Um, Paul, where can people go to keep up with your work and what you're up to? Um, Twitter is probably the best place, uh, at GoPaulBlair on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. And we will be back next Monday at our usual time of 3 p.m. Eastern to talk all things vaping policy and media coverage.